Hi, and welcome to the Trailside Channel. We are so glad you're joining us. God has a place and a purpose for you, and we hope this message helps you find that and know how much He loves you. Thanks for stopping by and enjoy the message. Good morning, church. How are we? Good. I know uh, if you came last week, you thought to yourself, that's a handsome sweater. And uh, I decided to one-up that this week. So if you haven't had a chance already because you're just that into worship, you take it all in. Go ahead and enjoy it. It's a long sleeve. It's uh, pretty fantastic. Um, hey, let me pray for us, and we will dive right into the end of this series, or kind of the end, I'll explain. But let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your goodness, your grace. Lord, pray that your word would uh, dive into our hearts and expose what needs to be exposed. God, that it would change us, it would mold us, that we would not be molded and changed by uh, rules that, that people on the fringe come up with for who you are and, and what that means, but instead our hearts would be molded by your word and what you say you are and who you say you are. God, that we would not falter to the, the myths of religiousness, um, to the, the shortcomings of uh, moralism, but instead, God, as we seek you in your word that you would speak to us and that it would transform our hearts, our minds, our mindsets, how we act, the things we say, and the things we do. Father, we love you. We thank you for all that you do. And it's in your holy, wonderful name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. Hey, why don't you go ahead and turn to Exodus 15 for me. And uh, if you've been waiting for us to make the shift into the New Testament, easy. It's coming. Hang with us. Um, but I want to tell you a couple quick things while you turn to Exodus 15. The first is we have two Christmas Eve services, 5 o'clock, 7.15. Um, we would love for you to help us get the word out because here's what you need to know. Uh, everybody behind the scenes has been working incredibly hard on that service. Um, it's going to be awesome. It's very creative. There's something that, that you're going to experience in our service that I don't think any churches around here are going to offer. Um, that's probably all I really want to say before it gets too in-depth there. But it's going to be great, super exciting, and uh, we're going to talk about Jesus and celebrate Jesus, and it's just going to be, uh, it's going to be incredible. I'm really pumped about it. Um, with that, next week on the 29th, we will not gather here. So there will not be church here. We're calling it Sabbath Sunday. We're going to give our staff, our volunteers, and uh, just tons of people who have worked tirelessly. Um, like Jacqueline, who's here pretty much every week, checking your kids in and sitting in the lobby. She's going to get a week off. Um, we're going to just rest. But we don't want to leave you empty-handed. So here's what we believe. In Deuteronomy 6, Scripture is very clear that the parents should be the providers of the spiritual leadership. And, and you know, this, everything we do here on Sundays, everything we do Wednesday night, that's secondary to you to you leading your house, you leading your family. And so on the app, which um, I think we can throw it up on the screen real quick. If you don't have it, you can literally just pull your phone out, get your camera open, take a picture of it when it pops up. On the app, next week, we're going to have eight days, week eight, the last one. And it's going to be for you to get together with your family, to sit down at the table, have breakfast together. We want you to literally sit and have breakfast. We're even going to throw a little recipe in there, okay? So we'll throw it out early. You can prep some breakfast for your family. And we want you to take that and to walk through this devotional with your family, to walk through this time with your family. It's going to be very easy. You don't have to have a biblical degree. Um, we've got everything you need right there. It's just a simple way of you sitting down with your family and leading them well. Uh, so it's going to be great. 
I hope you'll gather with family um, and experience that and that you'll take that opportunity. Um, So with that, we are wrapping up our series, kind of, like I said, you're actually going to wrap it up next week at home, but for purposes of gathering on Sunday, we're wrapping up our series eight days today. So it's been seven weeks, really eight weeks, because I was super sick a couple weeks ago, but seven weeks of walking through the first half of Exodus. And we've asked a really big question. We said, what does it mean to wait on God? Like when you actually are at a point where you have nothing left, well, what does it mean to wait on God? When, when you're walking up and you have nothing to depend on, nothing to step back on except to see what God does, and you've got everything around you that says this is going to end poorly, what does it mean to wait on God? What does that look like? And we've talked through everything from um, when Moses received his calling back in Exodus 3, I think it was, and then uh, waiting on God's timing through the plagues. I had our future uh, student pastor talk about plagues because he just deals with a lot of smelly, stinky stuff, so um, thought that'd be easy. Um, yeah. And we talked about what about when God says it's time now to move? How, how do you know when it's time to actually take the steps God says to take? And then how do you know what to do when you're taking the steps, but you're still being pursued and you still see the enemy coming? What is that? look like when you're waiting, when, when it looks darker and dimmer by day? How do you persevere through that? And then last week was a good week. We talked about what it means when you walk through the Red Sea, the difference of God's people walking on dry ground as opposed to Pharaoh's army getting destroyed by the sea around them. And I've thought a lot about this question and uh, I was talking to Marcus, uh, who was up here a little while ago, and um, I was talking to him, I guess, last week or two weeks ago. And man, it's, it's been a rough couple months. Just in the guided household, it's just been rough. In the trailside household, uh, man, like, the enemy's been on us pretty hard. And uh, I, I told Marcus, I was like, man, I'm going to stop preaching series like Waiting on God, because I'm tired of learning as I'm preaching. Um, <laughs> So for the next year, 2020, here's a free vision. It's just going to be happy stuff all the time. It's going to be what to do when God gives you $10 million and um, when your church is exploding out the doors and what to do when people don't think being the progressive pastor is such a terrible thing. Those are what, that's what we're going to preach about next year. Um, no, but <clears throat> I joke. But I say that because we have learned what it means to wait on God. We just have, and as we've sat and considered every meeting that we've had and every conversation with staff and all the planning, it's been like, what do we, how are we learning this? What does it actually mean if we're to say, okay, now it's time to wait on God? And I think that's what our church is. It's a, it's a continuous story of learning of what it means to wait on God. And so I thought back to where we were a year ago, and we had uh, 12 people in a very cold cafetorium which is as awesome as it sounds, in Northwest Middle, where there was no cell phone signal. So if someone died, you didn't know until church was over. Yeah. And the bathrooms forced you to become close friends with anyone who was in the building with you. It was a rough place to have church. But, but in the progressive waiting on God to step in and to do things, we had to sit there so that we could be here. And who knows what we'll say this time next year, five years from now, or where we'll be and what we'll be doing. But the key is that God always gets the glory, even when hope is gone, even when you have nothing left. And so I, I thought a lot about that. Like, what would the reaction be 
for our church or in your life. For that one thing you're waiting on last week, I hope you took a little piece of paper that had your Red Sea prayer, and I hope you wrote on it, and I hope you stuck it on your fridge, and that you're praying over it, and that you're excited to answer. What is your response going to be when that prayer is answered? I heard a story a couple of years ago, I guess it was like two years ago, about this guy named Harrison O'Kenny. That should mean nothing to you, because he's from Nigeria, (laughs) so you probably don't know him, or maybe you do, I don't know. Harrison was a cook and was operating a tugboat with 12 crew members just off the coast of uh, South Africa. And they were pulling oil tankers through, which is a a popular place for pirates, right? And I don't mean like har-har pirates, uh, you know, Somali pirates who would come and take over the ship and kill the crew and commandeer the ship and then take all the money. Well, what they would do is, because of those laws, they actually had to go and lock themselves in their rooms when they weren't working, like actively working, they had to lock themselves in their rooms because of a perceived threat of pirates. And so one night, Harrison, the cook, was hanging out, prepping some food, and all of a sudden, he felt a huge shift, and what he didn't know is that a rogue wave, some like 75 to 80 feet, had hit the side of the tugboat and literally picked it up and flipped it upside down, and as it flipped upside down, it began to take on water and dive to the bottom of the sea. And so Harrison was in the bathroom at the time, and he got up, and he ran into the engineer's room, and as the water was coming up, he grabbed a mattress, closed the cabin door, stuck the mattress down, and began to pray. And the water came up, and water came up, and water came up, and the ship actually was found 100 feet upside down in the bottom of the ocean, 20 miles off the coast. But here's the craziest thing. Harrison survived. When divers were going looking through the wreckage, almost three days after what had happened, they were actually looking for, you know, it was a rescue mission or a search mission at that point. They're counting down the crew members' bodies that they're finding, and they're trying to figure out what happened. Harrison looked down, and he saw a diver's light, but it turned away. Wow, that's disheartening. Can you imagine being stuck in an air bubble that's like four and a half feet big? And you finally see light, and you hear a ship, and you think, I'm saved, and then the light turns and goes away. It's it's pitch dark. He's got no hope. There's nothing. In fact, all Harrison had was one can of Coca-Cola. That's it. One can of Coke for three days. And so again, the light comes, and Harrison decides, okay, I have to make a swim for it. i got to dive in. i got to go try to get this guy to get his attention. And so Harrison musters up all the courage, all the strength he has, and he dives into the waters, But about 10 feet in, his lungs begin to give way, so he pops back in, hopeless. And a third time, the light comes. And he sees the light, and he says, okay, this is the time. And and as the light, the diver gets closer, Harrison reached down and grabbed the diver's neck. To which we'll flip the story. Imagine you're that guy, right? You're just searching a ship three days later, and all of a sudden something grabs your neck. I, like, that's it for me. I'm going to, that's it. I don't know how I'd respond, but my pant, my, never mind. Um, I said too much already. But Harrison was in total darkness thinking this is the end. He actually, he actually in, a, in an interview, said, I thought this was the end, and I'd begun praying that God would just save me. And he reached out and grabbed the shoulder of the diver. And here's the crazy thing. The diver goes up, and you can actually watch the video. The diver goes up, grabs his hand, and then comes into the air bubble, starts pumping oxygen through a line into the air bubble, and hands him a water. 
And this is what Harrison said. When, when he gave me the water, the diver was so scared that I knew he gave it to me and watched me drink it to see if I was really a human because I scared him so bad. <laughs> Unbelievable. And so the thought is, well, yeah, how do you respond? Like, what's the answer when you get out of that? And this is a quote that he said. He said, I told God, if you rescue me, I will never go back into the sea again. Never. I'm like, yeah. I'm not going to go back in the sea because of that. Like, that's enough. But that's a lie because, um, I'm kidding. Actually, my love language is cruises. So um, that's not a joke. Uh, yeah. I'll go back in the sea. But all that to say this, is that what your response would be in that deliverance? Would it be something like that? And what we're going to see here in about two seconds is, is Israel's response to deliverance. Because, guys, I, I think one thing we've missed, I think we've kind of forgotten the heaviness and the weight of what salvation is. And I'll challenge you with this. If you've ever watched a sports game or whatever and you see a big John 3.16 sign, and the idea of what that verse has doesn't shake you a little bit, I think we've become numb. And as we get ready to celebrate this coming of Jesus, I want us to walk in with the people of Exodus who just walked through the Red Sea, who've just been delivered, they've been redeemed, they've crossed the Red Sea, they're going into the Promised Land, they've seen their enemy be destroyed behind them. He's gone, he's, he's gone forever. Pharaoh will never come back to take them away. And this is their response in Exodus 15. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. They sang. Their response was to sing. Are we catching that? Their response wasn't to be like, Woo, glad that's over. Done. Cool, God, waiting for the next thing for you to do. Their response, they immediately began to sing. And this is what the song says. So that I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like, like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The flood stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire, my desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword and my hand shall destroy them. But yet you blew with your wind and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. You've led in your steadfast love the people whom you've redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of, of, I can't even say, Philist, golly, Philistia, I can't even say it. Now 
are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab, and the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm, as they are still as a stone, till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. That, y'all, that is a song of victory. That is a song. Do you know why I think we've become really numb to church? Because we have taken those things and we've taken the you, Lord, and the I wills and we've switched them. See, in in Israel's song, they are glorifying who God is. And they said, here's what the enemy said. The enemy said, I will do this. But Lord, here's what you have done. The problem with church today is we have told people it is about what we get instead of what God does. And when that fails and falters and we don't get what we think we deserve, we get mad at God and we forget the things he has done. And we become numb to things like God descending down as a baby and being born of a man so that he could live sinlessly for you and I on a cross to die. And that should shake us a little bit. And it doesn't because we have said, God, I will get this from you instead of God, you have done and I will do this. We've taken the role of the enemy and made it the role of us and God. Now, how does any of this matter? There's, there's five parts, five focuses that I think are really important within this song, within this praise. Now, these songs were typically written by women. Okay, It's not like a I hate dudes thing. They were written by women typically because they were written as men would come back from war men and sons, and so it was a celebration of the the boys coming back, being victorious, so the women of Israel would write these awesome songs. And there are five distinct parts. As we remember what it is to be redeemed by God, I want these to sink in with you, because what we're about to talk about should shake you a little bit. So here's what happens. Part one, the first thing that these songs do Say, praise God's name. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. And he has become my salvation. The first thing that redemption brings is a song of praise of God's name, of who he is. Do you know what? Can I tell you this? Do you know what? What it does for us when we start our praises out with reminding us who God is and how great he is. Do you know what it does? It reminds us who we're not. It reminds us that we're not that great. But God is. It it immediately takes the focus from our own hearts and puts it on God. Immediately. You You want dynamic prayer life? You, you want to feel it when you sing songs to God and thank God for who he is? Take the focus off of you and put it on him instead. The, the very first thing you do, the first thing you do is praise God's name. The, the second part is this. It's a reminder of the Lord's fighting for you and for us. Verse 1b through 3, this is what it says. 
The horse and his rider he's thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise him. My father's God. I will exalt him. For the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. It's a reminder of who God is fighting for, that he hasn't left you alone in your fight. God is not an earthly or a heavenly father who gets mad and kicks you to the curb and is like, you know what, I just can't deal with you anymore. That doesn't work. Because that doesn't make him God. That makes him an angry old man. A curmudgeon. Someone who says, get off my lawn. That's what, that's what that is. But we've allowed God to become that in our circles of how we view him. We've allowed him to become somebody who is a curmudgeon and says, if you put enough footprints in my yard, I'm going to kick you off the lawn forever and I'm done with you. And that's not what he says. That's not what scripture is. Part three is this. It's a reminder of how God delivered his people. I'm not going to read all of it, but starting in verse four. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he cast into the sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths. Your right hand, glorious in power, shatters the enemy. The blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood in a heap. The third part of what we read here is where we see that God has a total and overwhelming victory. He shatters the enemy of Israel, and it is a reminder of how God delivers his people. These are what songs of praise and redemption do. They remind us that God is the authority and that God's battle is to destroy his enemy and that we will achieve good out of that. Part four is that the Lord will continue to deliver his people, even in the sight of the enemy. Verse 14 The people have heard and they tremble. Their seas, terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. And I love the half, second half of verse 16. Until your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. See, here's what this song says. It says that all of the great kingdoms and all the great enemies will be cast into fear. As the Lord protects you as you walk by. That he's fighting the battle for you. And the fifth is this, that God's glory and his kingdom shall never end. Verse 18, the Lord will reign forever and ever. See, church, we also have an impossible circumstance. Some of those are very right in front of you. You know some very physical, impossible circumstances that are in your life. You know some very spiritual, impossible circumstances. But the first of those circumstances, the first victory that has to come is the one that we're going to celebrate in a few days. It's that when we were born into this world, when we needed redemption, we needed a line of hope, that we got one. That when you were born into sin and born into brokenness, when you were given a body that falls apart, that gets old, that ages, I know, it doesn't look this great forever, guys. I know. Stop it. 
that you were born into this broken relationship and that things grow old and, and that we have no chance to re- redeem it. There's none. Apart from Jesus, there is no hope in redemption. Yet, there was hope because, as we're going to celebrate in a couple days, God himself descended down. And he didn't just descend down and like take over, right? He, he came down and was born of a virgin teenager. This is why I tell people when they're like, oh, well, the Bible's written by men. I'm like, okay, let's talk about that for a second. All right, just go ahead and assume it is. That's fine. Let's, let's use your presumption. If you're writing a story to convince people to make you more authoritative, are you going to say God himself impregnated a teenage girl? Is that how you're going to write that story? That's not believable. Nobody writes that. Like I've said before, I'm going to write my own biography when I'm really old, and all 100 years from now, people are going to know is that I had incredible muscles and a six-pack until the day I died. I drove the coolest cars, had the biggest house, the most money. Like, I'm just going to lie the whole time. Minus the six-pack, obviously. Um, No, but... But this is the hope that we're going to celebrate. As you get ready for Christmas, the hope of redemption that you celebrate is that God came down and was born of a virgin teenage girl in a stall with a bunch of animals in the back house of someone's home. And he lived and shut his mouth for 30 years and did three years of unbelievable ministry and was hung on a cross and died for it so that you and I would have a way. Because there's hope. And so, with those five things in mind, I want to read one more song to you. It comes out of Luke 1. And it's just before Jesus is born. It's when Mary gets the news about what is about to happen to her. It's called the Magnificat. I think you have to say it that way and shake your head a little bit when you say it. But as Mary is told what is going to be happening, this is Mary's song. And listen for those five moments. Praise God's name. A reminder of the Lord's fighting for us. A reminder of how he's delivered his people. And he will continue to deliver his people in the sight of the enemy. And that God's glory and kingdom shall never end. Listen to this, what Mary says thousands of years later as she gets the news as a teenage girl that she is pregnant. This is what she says. We're in Luke 1, starting in verse 46. And Mary said... My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Part one, praise God's name. For he has been mindful of the humble estate of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Part two, the reminder of the Lord's fighting for us. His mercy extends to those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. Part three, a reminder of how God's delivered his people. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. 
He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever. Part four. He'll continue, or part five, excuse me, God's glory and his kingdom shall never end. He's promised it to Abraham and his descendants forever. Just as he promised our ancestors. See, here's the cool thing about the Magnificat. Is that thousands of years later, Mary's response for redemption for the world is much like Israel's response for their redemption. That, that God wins. Come on up. That God wins. That redemption is real and that you have a way and a pathway to it because of what God has done, not because of what you have done. That this fight isn't over. And so, church, here's my question. As you get ready to celebrate, as, as the next few days happen, as we have Christmas Eve service, my, my question to you is, how will you celebrate your song of redemption? Typically, pastors like to wait until Christmas Eve or Christmas Day to say things like, make this Christmas matter. Uh, listen, let's be ahead of that. Consider why Christmas matters. It is either a song of redemption and hope, or it's a song of presents and candy canes. And you have a choice of what that will be for you. And my, my, man, I beg you, please, consider a song of redemption. Consider a song of hope. Consider a song of celebration. And let it start with the Lord's goodness and end with his glory. 2020 can be everything that you wish it could be because it'll not be about you, it'll be about him. What does the dissension of a Christ child born into an impossible circumstance mean for you? Just today until Tuesday. Start small. As we saw in the conversation, the song of Israel. God gets the glory now and forever. So my question for you is, will God get the glory for you as well? Let me pray. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. Lord, we trust you. We believe in you. We know that you're good. Lord, as we finish our service this morning, I just ask that the next few days would matter. It'll be about you and what you've done. So God, fill us. Be with us. Encourage us. It's in your name we pray. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you were encouraged by the message and you feel closer to Christ than you ever have before. If you'd like to learn more about our ministry, visit us in person or help support our mission as we seek to love Jesus, serve others, and live unified, check us out online at trailside.church, or you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks so much for listening, and we can't wait to see you again soon.